read the chapter and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and then share what the Holy Spirit says to you. He also gave me the Bible reading guide. I put several of them out for you guys because I love them so much. Um, He compiled this when we first got here from some of Tim Keller's material. So I sat down with that material, and if you look in on uh, the third page, open it up to the third page. So as you're reading your Bibles, and you're not doing a study like this, but you want the Lord to speak to you, this is just a great tool that he can use. And I did the longer session on the right, and I literally read chapter 8 and and answered those questions on paper. Um, And so I used the one under meditation. And it was amazing the difference it made when I read for transformation, not information, and for feeding more than reading. As I meditated on the chapter, three words stood out to me along with some conviction and encouragement from the Holy Spirit. Those three words are grace, joy, and love. Three really big words that we could spend weeks on each one. All three are deeply connected to each other in this chapter. And I'd like to look at each of these this morning. And we'll start with love. When John and I were dating, and we were starting to talk about getting married, we were sitting on campus one day, and he said he loved me, and I said, why? (laughs) And he said, because I've chosen to. And I said, well, that doesn't sound very romantic. (laughs) And then he proceeded to tell me that love was a choice and that when we were married and we were having problems, we were having fights, one of us was sick, we had no money, he would love me. When grief came into our home, he would love me. It was a choice. For someone who came from a broken home, whose dad left when she was a young girl and never came back, this really spoke to my heart. I had never heard love described this way, and I have come to understand that love is not just a romantic feeling. It's not just a feeling that comes and goes, depending on the circumstances of life. It's a command. Jesus says the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. A neighbor is anyone who is in need. The command to love others is based on how God has loved us. Since believers have been the recipients of love, they must love. But what does it look like? We have a saying in our family. John's been saying it for years and years. That's what love looks like. When people say, how can you drive 10 hours all the way to Des Moines? The answer is, that's what love looks like. Um, When John spent a couple weeks ago lots of money, lots of time, lots of energy on moving Claire back to Des Moines. That's what love looks like. When someone's filled with grief over the loss of a family member or someone is sitting for hours in a hospital waiting room holding a loved one's hand, we say that's what love looks like. When you're watching your child drive out the driveway off to college and the tears are running down your face, it's because that's what love looks like. What does love look like in the Bible? The first thing that comes to mind, to my mind, is 1 Corinthians 13. Some call it the love chapter. My Bible even titled it um, the way of love. It's a great chapter to meditate on when thinking about relationships in your life. But for the kind of love that relates to chapter 8 that we've studied this week, the 
um, we should look at chapters 3 and 4 of 1 John. I'm going to read some of those verses to you because they're so powerful. Um, and you can, I'll just tell you the, um, the verses and then you can write those down. Chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message we have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Uh, 16 through 19. We know what real love is because Christ gave up his life for us. And so we also ought to give up our lives for our Christian brothers and sisters. But if anyone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need and refuses to help, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us stop just saying we love each other. Let us really show it by our actions. And then 4, 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is born of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. It is not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love has been brought to full expression through us. And then uh, 19 through 21. We love each other as a result of his loving us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we have not seen? And God himself has commanded that we must love not only him, but our Christian brothers and sisters too. I felt like those were such powerful, practical verses about what, what real love is, and especially in, in light of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. God loves us, and we in turn love others. Love is having someone's best interest at heart, putting someone else's needs above my own. This can be as simple as giving to the poor or making a pot of soup for someone who is sick or responding with patience to a disrespectful child. But it also means making the first move when there is something between me and my husband or a friend, having a wide open heart toward the people that God has put in my life to meet their needs, even when it's hard. It isn't based on my feelings. It's responding to others in light of what God has done for me. John Piper says that love is the overflow of joy in the grace of God that meets the needs of others. The overflow of joy, or as it says in verse 2 of chapter 8, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And later Paul talks about their generosity being an act of grace and evidence of their love. Verse 2 really struck home. It pierced my heart because I realized that joy was evidence of something in their heart. I kept reading it and wondering how in a severe test of affliction, they still had such abundant joy that it overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That's a lot of joy. I pictured that joy as a bubbling spring of water that just keeps coming and keeps coming. And I wondered, is that what people say about me? Is that even what I would say about myself? I feel like the Lord was getting my heart ready for this verse a couple of weeks ago. I was scrolling through Instagram and came upon an account that I follow that makes all kinds of wooden signs for the house. Uh, signs that have different Bible verses or cute little sayings, and they're, re- they're really nice. Um, the one I saw that day was a sign over a fireplace, and it said, Ain't Life Grand? And at first I thought, oh, I like that. 
But then the thought that came into my my mind was that I wouldn't buy that one. I wouldn't hang that in my house because that's not how I felt. I could picture Patty Alvord having that one hanging in her house. (laughs) Uh, There was another one a couple days later that said, it is well with my soul. And I thought, well, that's more me. And, but it really bothered me. I thought, my, the verse I liked, I mean, the sign I liked makes me feel like Eeyore and not <laughs> full of joy and bubbling over. <laughs> and so it bothered me, and I thought, well, what does joy look like? Maybe I had the wrong definition of joy. Um, maybe I was mixing up joy and happiness. One author says that joy isn't like happiness, which is based on happenings or whether things are going well or not. No, joy remains amidst suffering. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The book of Psalms has more references to joy than any other book in the Bible. And we all know David wrote a lot about joy in the midst of trouble, worry, anger, fear, and deep sorrow. But he still had joy. Joy is not happiness. Joy is a permanent possession, while happiness is fleeting. Joy stays, happiness comes and goes. So what is this permanent possession that gives us such joy? Tim Keller in his book, The Songs of Jesus, it's all about the Psalms that he wrote with his wife, commenting on Psalm 37 says, living for yourself inevitably comes to nothing, but for us, a future awaits. This doesn't necessarily mean a prosperous life. It does mean a future of increasing joy and love in this world and infinite amounts of both in the next. We will be resurrected. We will not go to nothing. We will not be just a floating consciousness. We will not become part of an impersonal cosmic force. Our future is a world of love. We will walk, eat, converse, embrace, sing, and dance, all in degrees of joy, satisfaction, and power that we cannot now imagine. We will eat and drink with the Son of Man forever. No matter what happens here on earth, no one can take that away. John Piper says that Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. Joy is called the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. The joy in my soul is coming from the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, and he does this work by causing me to see the glory and beauty of Christ. The Holy Spirit opens the eyes of my heart to see the beauty of Christ in all that he is and all that he has done and all that he is doing in my life. I see the beauty of Christ in his word. This is how I know him, by spending time in his word and allowing the Holy Spirit to really speak to me and meditating on what he shows me. And that produces fruit in my life. That is how I abide in Christ and grow. We see the glory and beauty of Christ in his word, but we also see him in all that he has given. The beauty of nature and people and music and food and mountains and ocean, all of these gifts from our Heavenly Father. Do you ever look out the window as you're driving and see a beautiful sunset or amazing fall color in the trees and exclaim out loud a thank you to the God of creation? Even last night as I was driving here, just the timing of it, uh, there was the most amazing sunset. I don't know if you all saw that last night. And I wanted to call Jane Scanlon and say, make the ladies go outside and see it because I just was so amazed at, at God's grace. I'm so humbled by the beauty that surrounds us in this world and I'm daily aware of his gifts. 
But the most beautiful gift he has given us is himself. Verse nine says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Why did Christ exchange the riches of eternal love and glory for absolute poverty? For my sake and for your sake. Christ exchanged his riches and glory for our poverty as sinners so that we could exchange our poverty as sinners for his riches and glory. The Macedonians were filled with an abundance of joy in the midst of their extreme poverty. They were poor in the things of this world, but rich in eternal things, those possessions that could not be taken away. And all of this was because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. It's all grace. So what is this grace that has produced this amazing joy that we see in the Macedonians? I love the simple acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. And it goes so well with verse 9. One definition is the free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. Salvation is through grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. I am accepted by God forgiven and adopted into his family solely on the basis of God's free grace. I can do nothing to earn it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one should boast. I'm so very aware of God's grace in my life. I can think back to my childhood and see how God was drawing me to him. In spite of my circumstances as a child, God was there leading and guiding me. He put people in my life, like the neighbor across the street, who not only told me about Jesus and his free gift of salvation, but also provided practical needs for our family, like blankets and food. He gave me Sunday school teachers who loved me and cared about me and spent time with me on a regular basis, pouring into my life. He led me to go to a Christian college where I met John, but also grew in my faith by leaps and bounds through studying the Bible and by teachers and fellow students. Just the fact that I even went to college is a gift of his grace. I have a long list of people that God has used in my life to learn and grow from. I grew up in a broken and very dysfunctional home, but by God's grace and mercy, John and I have done the hard work to have a marriage that is such a blessing. My life has been grace upon grace upon grace. As I think about God's grace in my life, it really does fill me with joy, deep abiding joy, joy in any and all circumstances. Grace produces joy, And the outflow of this joy is generosity, a generous heart towards others. God has blessed me so that I can be a blessing to others. Jesus is the source of my joy and my example of how to live out this life of joy, a life poured out for others. That's what love looks like. Thank you.